With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Now, nothing impresses me, you know, like they talk about rich people, you know, like... You loved it. I, le- I loved it, yeah. We'll go to Vegas on a Friday, on a Sunday we'll come back. Same in Chicago, I will go rent a limousine, you know, we will go to all around the city and with girls and fancy drinks, you know, all this life, like Louis 13, you know, that was one of my favorite, $1,000 the bottle, because money was easy, you know? And that's when I think the police started noticing, you know, well, this guy works in the warehouse, maybe making $60,000 a year, you know, like how he's doing all this and he works for Hyundai. I remember in 2008 is when my friend got caught. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and today we're embarking on part three of our drug dealer series, a compilation of stories about a different kind of entrepreneur, one who demonstrates the hustle, aspiration, and independence common to many of our previous founders, but whose attributes evolved under entirely different circumstances. Today's episode is about Juan Bedoya, a shipping manager, budding business owner, and loving husband who for a time trafficked over $150 million of cocaine annually. We'll track his story through the days of ravenous hunger to riding limos and throwing back $1,000 bottles of cognac up to achieving the grounded purpose-driven life he has today. Yearning for a better future out of extreme poverty, we'll watch the sirens of greed lure Juan out of earnest ambition and into mounds of illicit cash. But first, let's start off in the ruins of a devastating earthquake where he was working tirelessly at just nine years old to earn a meager bowl of beans and a corn tortilla. I was born in 1970 in a little village named San Jose El Idolo from Guatemala. My lifestyle uh, was very poor, you know. When you say poor, what does that look like in relation to maybe what was around you? It was days, you know, that we won't have no food, you know, like uh, we would go like a full day, 24 hours with no food. And for us, you know, a tortilla, you know, just made from corn with maybe a little bowl of beans, that was for us luxury back then. You know, when I was in between my seven and 11 years, we were suffering very bad. Why was it so bad? First of all, because in 1976, we had the earthquake over there, you know. On February 4th, 1976, in the blackness of early morning, the earth did indeed begin to move. For 39 seconds, it ruptured and broke. Just 39 seconds, and the worst natural disaster in the history of Central America had been recorded. And then uh, the absence of my dad, you know, my dad living in, in the USA and then just being raised by the single mother, it was difficult for her. Was your dad not sending money back to your mom? Not, not back then. He was uh, struggling. He was uh, uh, an immigrant here, you know, and he was just start, starting uh, to get his life here. So he couldn't send us money to survive. And so I feel like growing up in set, like that kind of environment, um, you have to grow up quickly. You have to start helping out and support the family. How did you start to help out uh, financially? Between nine years and the 11 years, we started working in the, in the sugarcane fields. What did that work look like? Imagine being in the sun over 90 degrees, you know, and cutting sugar cane, you know, it's, it's very hard. What did the other people working with you think of, like, these two kids doing this adult job? Some people that knew my mom and they would help sometimes, you know, to, so we could, because they would give us assignments, you know, like, that we have to finish, you know, like, uh, so by two o'clock we were supposed to get done with that assignment. 
sometimes we wouldn't make it, you know, so it would be some adults, you know, my mom will help us to finish the assignment so we will get a full pay. Sometimes say, man, you, you kids should be in school, you know, you should be doing what kids do. But unfortunately, we had to survive. For most kids, survival is a given. But for Juan, it was something that took hours of labor to earn. And while many of us consider school and play to be the foundations of childhood, to him, they were coveted luxuries. Nothing came easy. Furthermore, the tasks assigned to sugarcane workers are considered extremely dangerous. At just nine years old, Juan was handling large machetes and being exposed to a variety of toxic pollutants. But acquainted with the excruciating pains of hunger, Juan did not hesitate to sweat under the beating Guatemalan sun. Not only was his family struggling with poverty, but the whole country was. It was suffering from $1.1 billion of damages that the 1976 earthquake had caused. With financial insecurities constantly threatening his family and his country's livelihood, Juan knew early on the power and value of money. Luckily, he'd soon discover hobbies and passions, brief escapes from the stressors that crowded his childhood. Uh, eight years old, I started playing soccer, and then also I started getting interested in the music. And me and my brother, I remember we used to go on the streets, you know, in the park, and play with our little uh, marimba. Could you sing like a song that you would have sung back then? Yeah, I used to sing the uh, call uh, ella and start. Man, feel the chills. <laughs> I, I come back to my past. Oh, yeah. And, and it's sad, you know, because I was a kid. And this is a, a Breaking Heart song, you know. So, and it's me singing this. People used to say, what, what this kid singing this kind of song, you know? But it says like this. Me cansé de rogarle Me cansé de decirle Que yo sin ella de pena muero Ya no quiso escucharme Si sus labios se abrieron Fue padecerme Music very much, I use it to get my worries out, you know, my stress out, like crunches of my life, you know, I use music for that. When I sing, I feel like I let everything out. A song transported him back to this time in Guatemala, and Juan could not help but break into tears. He was tapping into the deep sadness and struggle he must have held day to day as a young boy. The lyrics Juan sang translates into English as I felt my life slipping away into abyss of deep and black. Just like my luck, I wanted to find oblivion. Man, those are some extremely heavy feelings to be carrying at 12. We feel too much sorry about my brother because he had a physical problem. He used to bleed a lot from the nose, you know, so we would try to baby him, you know, so. In the sugar cane, I always would take the lead. I'm trying to take the hard part. He takes the easy road. I was real close to him because I was afraid to lose him. It wasn't in September, you know. In September, we do like the independence of Guatemala, September 15th. So we marched through the town. That day was at noon. It was real sunny, you know, the temperature and everything. And with him having that problem of bleeding nose, affect him real bad when he was marching and he started bleeding and we couldn't stop the blood. About an hour after we were marching, he passed out and he couldn't come back to life. And then uh, we picked him up and went to the car and brought it to the biggest town and we tried to put some blood transfections, you know. I will make sure that he's okay, you know, like I'm bringing my brother protector. And that's how I've been raising, you know, like trying to protect my brother, trying to protect my mom, you know, trying to provide, you know, for my mom and help the family, you know. At just eight years old, Juan took on the role of protector and provider. After expecting a day of celebration and parading, he walked into one of the scariest moments of his childhood. 
It shook him to the core to realize that out of nowhere, his brother, his closest loved one, could just disappear from his life in a moment's notice. Juan not only had to worry about whether or not there would be food on the table, but now he also felt the instability and precariousness of life itself. With these anxieties underlying his childhood, Juan was eager to ensure his family was safe and taken care of. After years of carrying the responsibility and fear, it's no wonder why he became easily enamored with the carefree life of partying. Okay, college. You know, in Guatemala, we start early. I started uh, 12 years, you start going to college. And then you do four years and you graduate. I choose to be in accounting. And the same time in the town where the college was, it was the practice for the soccer, you know. So I was doing both. I would go practice and then go to college. And I always wanted to do good in what I was doing because I didn't want to go back to their life. So when I started playing soccer, I was like doing my 100%, you know, make sure that my coach would like that. When I started going to college, you know, I wanted to get good grades because I want to come out of that life, you know, that I was living. But that's when I said my dad came in the picture, you know, and started helping too. The first time that he arrived to Guatemala from the United States, he started hearing about us, you know, like how we were suffering, you know, to survive and the lifestyle that me and my brother and my mom were living. So I guess, you know, he feel that it was his responsibility to start helping. He started little by little, you know. And then when I was playing semi-pro soccer, I started leaving college, you know, like my grades started going down. I would say much because I was getting distracted by females, you know, the lifestyle. I seen the other players, you know, they're doing drinking, going out with, you know, females, and it was all out of control, you know. So I started doing it too, you know. I had a, a couple injuries, one of my shims, and one game, it got broke. So I was... Like, I couldn't even go to college, and I couldn't play soccer as good as I was. You know, I still was playing, but it wasn't as good. So everything was going down. So my dad still, you know, trying to help me. He said, well, you cannot be in Guatemala no more. You have to move to the United States with me. Juan's priority was to build a better life for himself and his family. As a teenage boy, he would step away from partying and move across the continent from his loved ones if it meant he could improve their circumstances. So pining for relief, Juan put himself to work in the prosperous U.S. What were your perceptions of what America would be? This is a big mistake that the people make when they go back from the United States. They make they make look United States like you come here and the trees, the leaves are dropping dollars, they're dropping money, you know. So you think that when you're gonna come here, you're gonna make a lot of money, you know, and you're gonna be rich, you know. And for me, I say, yeah, I'm going to the United States, you know, I'm gonna go make a lot of dollars and help my family. I used to see people that go back from here and they had you know, money and the cars and everything. I said, man, I want to do that, you know? So that was the, the vision that I had. And so what did it actually look like when you went over there? Well, when I came to the United States, I came to Chicago, Illinois. The first uh, issue I had was the, the language. I couldn't communicate. You know, how are I going to go to work, you know? I wouldn't be able to express myself. I'm a person, you know, like I like to express myself and I like to fight for my rights, you know, like I think I got rights, you know, and I like to, you know, say what I feel, you know. And then my dad said, well, the first thing you're going to need to do is go to school here and start learning the, the language. That was another thing. My dad was working in the warehouse, so he, right away, he put me to work with him. But uh, I had that charisma, you know, like, and some American guys that work there, they start teaching me English. So they would start writing in, in, the, in the crates, you know, in cardboard, and you say, Carlos, this is how you say hi, you know, how you say, I want to go eat. 
or I, I just say please, you know, all, all those words. They were teaching me in the warehouse. They used to call me the, the baby, the kid, you know, because I, I was only like 17 years old when I was working with, with them, you know. It was like, what's going on? You know, I, I, I was growing too quick, you know, and, and developing uh, skills too quick. That for me, I was too young to, to do all, you know, things like that, like be driving forklift and to learn, to learn how to read the, the numbers and how to start, you know, speaking the language. All those communicate with people, you know, all those skills for me, I, I feel like it was too early to start learning all that. Juan was thrown into cold water and had to learn to swim quickly, adopting a whole new culture, language, and skill set all at once to stay afloat. Nonetheless, at just 17, Juan had the determination and discipline to adapt. Juan didn't have the freedom of financial stability, and he was still getting a handle of the language. But regardless, he was eager to gain power over his life. As we've seen with many of our founders before, obstacles like these are the breeding grounds for ambition and hustle. For instance, what motivated Jim Quick to not only thrive in his academics, but also teach thousands of other students to excel was the years he had spent feeling helpless in the school system. For anyone who has felt powerless during these circumstances, taking control over your life is groundbreaking. Juan put his head down and worked for the opportunity and comfort that America promised. But as we'll see next, without guidance, this ambition can very easily snowball into recklessness. When did you start to to make some money there, and and what did you what did you buy with like your first check? Oh yeah, that's funny because my dad uh, he, he actually he got mad at me when I, I got my first check, and I remember it was three hundred and forty six dollars. Imagine I'm talking in nineteen ninety. So back then, that's uh, it was a lot of money here. There was a music store, and already when I was passing by, I had a guitar. You know that I'm gonna get that guitar. You know, like I'm gonna get it. And and the price, I think it was two hundred and eighty dollars, something like that. It was the price of the guitar. So when I got my first check, I go and cash it, and I went and buy the guitar. I come back home and, and my dad said, you cash your check? I said, yeah. And how much money you got? Well, I just got this left. And he said, how oh, come? What you do there? You send it to Guatemala? And I said, look, I bought me a guitar. Oh, you should have seen his face, you know, like, you bought a guitar? You know, like, he was all mad, you know, because he thought I was going to use the money for something better, you know. Take me through some of, like, the promotions and some of the big wins up to uh, 2001. In 1990, Hyundai, so he was going to move to an hour away from the town where we were. And he asked my dad if it was okay, I would go and work with him. So I moved with them and started working at Hyundai. I could speak the language a little better. I understood better. And I had a little experience about the warehousing. So they offered me the position of traffic specialist. For three months, I was driving back and forth, but it was too long, you know, like it would take me like two hours to get back home at night, you know, after work. It lead me to move and be independent, get my own apartment and start building my own life, you know. I was making more money. I was a single guy. Started experience again, the drinking, you know, meeting many, many, you know, new people. And that's when I think things start going the wrong way. When I was living with my dad, at least my dad was controlling me more. Like he, he wanted to make sure that I deposit money in my saving account, that I send money to Guatemala. He was like my manager, you know, like and then when I got separate from him, all that was gone. I was, I got crazy. Juan's craziness would start as innocent curiosity, though. A desire to explore outside the parameters his father had laid out for him. And I understand this curiosity. Up until this point, all of Juan's choices had been confined to whatever served his family's needs. For almost all his life, he had dependents to care for and consider. But at Juan's age, this would take an unusual level of maturity to keep up. Like any kid, when he started making his own money, 
he wanted to buy something for himself, like a new guitar. Now, all on his own, he was finally discovering what it was like to have agency over his life. I think the craziness that came with this newfound freedom relates to what I'd like to term the beach ball effect. If you force a beach ball under the water, put pressure and restrictions on it, it'll stay there. But once you let it go, all that restrained energy pushes the beach ball to the surface until it explodes past the water and into the air. Juan had just been released, and now it was time to explore and indulge his unfettered curiosity, leading him to some local bars. You part ways from your dad, and you get into this crowd of of drug dealers. Is that is that what's happening? Yeah, drug dealers. I was going to the bar, drinking with them. How did you find this community? Because like my perception of you up to this point is like straight laced dude trying to make a bit of money on the side, loves playing guitar. I'm uh, curious where where you even initially met these these people. I met them at the bar, you know, because I stopped drinking. And I was the person that I like to carry money in my pocket, you know, like a couple hundred dollars. And my personality, they say that I present like I'm, a, you know, like a, I'm somebody important, you know. Is that, were you trying to do that? No, not really. No, I didn't want to be there. You know, I was just like, I, I would say very much I've been scared to life and go back to my old style, you know, maybe I'm just like tough, you know, like. I don't want to go back, you know, so maybe that make me represent that person, you know, the somebody. Yeah, like you're trying to put like a facade of like, hey, like this is who I am to almost prove to yourself that you can be that person. Very much to myself and trying to please other people, you know, I, I was very much more like coming out of that lifestyle, but at the same time impress people, you know. I wanted to make sure that they, oh man, this guy is important. So when I was going to the bar, you know, start drinking with friends and all, all this craziness, I went to this little bar. I, I remember it was 150 people that fit in that bar. I would go and buy like drinks for everybody. When the guys saw me and saw the people that I was hanging, you know, they thought I was a big shot, you know, like I had a lot of money and all that. The owner came and he offered offered me the bar. Say, hey, you're interested? You'd be making easy money. He was selling just the business, you know. It was uh, about eighty thousand dollars for the bar. For the bar, just for the business. Yeah, we come with an agreement. I go and close my four hundred one k. You know, I, I don't know how to put the money together, and I got the business. What did that moment feel like for you to purchase that bar? Oh man, that that was a bad mistake because that that makes it make me worse, you know. Because imagine I didn't have no business and I still was trying to impress people and being like somebody big. Now having a bar that made it worse. I thought I was millionaire, you know. I got money. When did you realize that you were hanging out with drug dealers? They didn't work, but they had money. So that was one uh, him, you know. Well, they they had to do something to have that kind of money, you know. And they were they were driving fancy cars, you know, like. And finally, the offer came. You know, some of the guys came to me. I remember, and then when he he told me and said, "You want to be one of us? You know, like you want to work with us?" And I said, "What I have to do? Well, for now, we're gonna use you as a stash. So very much where I'm gonna hide the the drugs for them." They gave me a lot of money for that, you know. I was like, "Whoa!" Really? How much were you making? A thousand dollars for each kilo that I was stashing for them. Wow, a thousand! So, how many kilos were they stashing? Well, I started with thirty. You know, I was hiding thirty for them. So imagine thirty thousand in a week. Oh my God, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And so I was. Were you like, nervous in the beginning? Yeah, I was nervous because I. For me, that was a lot of money. I said, what the easy money, you know? And I didn't know what to do with the money. With the, It was so much money. And that's how I started getting greedy and greedy. And I started hanging with them, you know, like... Can you describe what these people looked like? And, like, how they acted and all that stuff? In uh, the bar, I had, a, like, a security guard, you know, that they would search people to make sure they don't bring firearms. You know, make sure that the place is safe. So when these people would come, you know, even my security guards, they know they just would walk through, you know, like they're in the house. 
we already have to prepare a table for them, you know, and have the bottles that they like, you know, because they drink special, you know, like a hundred dollar bottle, you know. Good customers to have for you, though, bringing in some income. <laughs> yeah, when they will get there easy, I will make between three to four thousand dollars, and you know, just from them, you know, because they will spend a lot of money. We we'll buy drinks for people. They will help bring girls, you know, and you know, in, in the bar environment, when they will bring girls, so the place will get packed, you know. So it was good for me business, you know. When they would come to the bar, it was a special night. The greed that began to take over Juan reminds me of a study that was done by medical researchers at Boston University between two groups of rats. They compared the levels of the corticotropin-releasing factor, or CRF. This is the stress response in the brain that rises when humans experience withdrawal. One group was intermittently exposed to sugary, tasty foods, while the other was solely fed plain-tasting food. When the latter was exposed to a more flavorful variety, their CRF levels skyrocketed. With an abnormal fixation and anxiety over what they had been deprived of, they overrate significantly. For Juan, this abnormal fixation grew around the money, power, and leisure he had been deprived of his whole life. Juan was dipping his toes into the stashing game, and this led to a disposition more like a lion developing a taste for human blood than a rat nibbling on some candy. Juan began to dominate the drug trade. It seems like there's two kinds of drug dealers. There's the business guys. And then there's the junkies, right? Yes. The the junkies have enough business sense just to get their drugs and continue that lifestyle. And then there's the business guys that don't do anything, but amass like somewhat of an empire. And it seems that you fall into that business category. Yeah. And like I always being uh, an entrepreneur person, I, I always had that in mind. I want to do business, you know, like build business. Do, and and then maybe that helped me too. You know, I had that that discipline that you cannot use your own product. You're, you're, I feel like you have the personality. It's like, okay, 30 grand is cool, but like, how can I raise the level on this? Like what were the next steps for you to get more involved? I started spending more time with them. Like, and I was paying attention where they were getting the, the drugs. I, I traveled with them a couple of times, you know, to go where they were getting it. And I, I, Start connecting with the people that they were connecting, you know, like, and like in their purchases, they will let me purchase too, you know, like if they will buy, let's see, 50 kilos, you know, they will say, well, 10 out for one kilos, you know, so, and the same purchase, they start getting me involved, you know. And is this kilos of cocaine? Kilos of cocaine, yeah. And then when I had a, a, a good amount of money, you know, where I can buy my own drug, I started independent with them. I told them, you know what, uh, I think it's time for me. I can do my, my own stuff independent from them, you know. This lifestyle is not without a little bit of risk and danger, you know, that you have the, the, the police side, but you also have the people that are in the industry. So as you decide to take on more responsibility or when's like that first moment where it's like, oh, wow, like this can be dangerous. When I decided to start doing my, buying my own product, my own business, I drove to California because that was the spot where we were getting the drugs from California. So that first time I did it just by myself. I didn't say nothing to nobody. I just, I knew the connections. I knew the time and the we and made everything. And I went, did it, brought the money, paid, got my drug and left, you know, 25 kilos. I, I thought it was easy. And how much is 25 kilos street value? Uh, 16,000 per kilo back then, I'm talking about, you know, long term, 16,000. So that's uh, uh, 160. You said 16,000 per kilo uh-huh. and you had 25. So that's $400,000. Yeah. That money I, I had it with me and to go buy that. Now, when I will bring it back, I will sell it, uh, between twenty to twenty-one thousand. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so that that's like six hundred twenty-five. So you could possibly make like upwards of two hundred thousand dollars of profit. Oh yeah, easy back then. And back then, is you're talking about a lot of money. You know? That's a lot of money by today's standards, but like in the early thousands, that's like money, money. Yeah, but uh, at that moment, I think it's when I got blind. You know, like I, I'm untouchable. 
and I can do whatever I want to do. How did you start living differently when you came into that amount of money? And how do you, are you funneling some of that money through the bar? Like, how are you making that money usable? The little bar that I had, I sold it. And I bought a, a nightclub, a big nightclub. And I'm talking about 2,400 people that fit in that nightclub. God. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't just, uh, I wasn't only the owner. It was, uh, we got like four partners. Mm. How much do you pay for the nightclub? When we bought it, it cost $2.6 million. Wow. And that's when it got worse. I started getting more greedy, you know, like, oh, man. How does your lifestyle change? It changed dramatically because I was married, you know, but I was acting like I wasn't married. I had uh, two kids, you know, and I was just giving them money. They were fine, you know. They didn't need me. I was just... They need something here. You know, my wife, my ex-wife needed something here. You know, like I was away from home. I was having, supposed to, you know, running my, my business. And my life is, it was a part big time. I was more focused in enjoying life. And I was going to Vegas. I was in limousines all the time. At that time, I wasn't even doing the, the moves no more. I had people doing the moves. Well, how do you other people start to f- uh, filter into your, your operation? They decide to start working, buying from me instead of them, you know. That's how I started being independent. And they, they saw that I was a, a guarantee guy, you know, that I wasn't, I wasn't afraid to do it. Whatever I say, it's going to happen, you know. Because of that, they, they were good at paying me back, you know, like, Respond because you know in the drug business you see a lot of things that people don't want to pay and then they get kill each other and it's crazy. And it seems like not only were you trustworthy, but you also seemed to know who to trust. Exactly, I had that. I knew who to sell it, you know, because I already knew them from the other operations that they were good people selling, buying, you know, and paying. And you gotta remember, I ran from 2001 to 2008. That's eight years. I. Uh, create a lot of relationship with people and all kind, you know, like I was trust. Yeah. And so you start hiring people for your operation, right? Yes. I had a, a two guys, you know, and then the same environment that I trusted and then they start working for me. In this business, you trust or you don't do business with nobody. There's nothing like in between. To run as big as you did for eight years is like a tough task, not only to not get killed by people you're working with, but also to evade police. Like, did you have like the 10 commandments of <laughs> being in this industry? On Tuesdays, I will do no business, nothing. Tuesdays was like a black day for me. Why? I don't know. I had that feeling that I never, on Tuesday, I feel like something was going to happen to me on Tuesday, you know? So I was scared to that day. That was one of my rules. Other of my rules was that don't use your own product. I never use Coke in my life. I used to test it like just with my fingers, you know, like when it used to get like little oily, I knew it was a good product. That's a big thing that I distributed, but I never do it in my life, never. My only issue was drinking, but I never did any kind of drugs. Here, I think we can see Juan, not just as a drug dealer, but as a founder and entrepreneur. I mean, if you really look at the hierarchy of management in drug distribution and momentarily ignore the loads of narcotics involved, drug trafficking is not far off from corporate America. However, falling off this figurative ladder is far more deadly and violent of a plummet. In fact, Stephen Levitt, a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, discusses this in his TED Talk on the business behind crack cocaine. According to Levitt, the same time Juan was dealing, the average seller had a 25% chance of dying within four years of entering the trade. As pointed out by Levitt, that's a worse survival rate than sitting on death row. The gang is just like McDonald's. Selling drugs for a gang is perhaps the worst job in all of America. Why is it such a bad job? Well, the reason it's such a bad job is that there's somebody shooting at you a lot of the time, okay? The hourly wage the foot soldiers were earning 
was $3.50 an hour. It was below the minimum wage. What are the death rates? 7% per person per year. You're in the gang for four years, you expect to uh, die with about a 25% likelihood. Okay? That is about- Nonetheless, Juan successfully executed this high-risk enterprise for a whole of eight years. He had an exceptionally keen sense of entrepreneurship. Like many of our founders, Juan took time to carefully observe the ins and outs of the business. When he took drug dealing on, he knew who to recruit for a reliable team and how to manage an efficient system to make a profit. And what I think motivated Juan is also something that a lot of our founders share. He wanted enough money to create personal freedom, freedom to pursue whatever he wants. And that freedom took Juan to the artist's dream, pursuing a career as a musician and singer. We'll be right back after this break. Adrian and I have been grinding on some Finding Founders work. And uh, I don't know about you, Adrian, but I'm a little hungry. Dude, I'm starving. I'm pretty hungry for some McDonald's fries, but I don't have the secret recipe and I kind of want to make it at home. So let's see if we can get that secret recipe. Hello, thank you for calling in from my McDonald's. It's Teddy. How can I help you? I was wondering how you guys go about making your fries. So I'm not really sure what you're asking, sir. Like, like what, what is your process for making fries? Like, how does, how do you guys make it? Now, unveiling the McDonald's fries secret recipe. We get natural cut natural fries. Cut fries. And we cook them in a deep fryer. Deep fryer. For approximately three minutes. Well, they get raised out of our basket. Raised out of baskets. And they're drained for 10 seconds. 10. Seconds, nine, eight. They're loaded into uh, our fry bay. They're salted. So much salt. And then they get loaded into uh, fry cartons and put in the bags of food for our lovely customers. Lovely customer. Oh, that actually uh, sounds pretty simple. It sounds like almost as simple as like sharing a podcast. <laughs> Anything else I can help you with, sir? Uh, yeah, I mean, it just sounds super simple. Like, you can, like, share a, a podcast by, like, taking a screenshot or tagging Finding Founders and posting it to the social media of your choice. Uh, well, that's probably not what I'm going to do. Um, <laughs> but if the owner of this particular chain wants to do that, then I'm sure that he will. Oh, he will? I'm sure that he would if that's something he chose to do. I heard you say my word is my bond and I promise through the highest mountaintops in all the land that I will tell <laughs> my manager to do this very thing or death <laughs> do you not remember that well, I am the manager and I said that if the owner chooses to do that he will inform us and it will happen it will happen all right well thank you for making it happen and I appreciate your time So now you know the secret McDonald's fry formula and how to share finding founders. So share this podcast with a friend. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Now back to the podcast. I was the person that used to go to a restaurant or a bar and close the bar. But I used to bring the mariachis. I used to bring musicians, you know, to keep the place entertaining. And one of those events, I was real, like, heartbroken, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. So I asked him, actually, let me sing a song. So the mariachi got and I started singing and everybody was like, what? What's going on? This guy can't hear a note. So the mariachi got excited and said, man, you should sing more often. So I got my own mariachi. You know, I record two CDs, and that's how I started developing the music. Could you tell me, like, the peak of that music career? I met some uh, famous people, you know, uh, Pepe Aguilar, uh, Joan Sebastian. I met his son, Jose Manuel, Jenny Rivera. I used to open for them. But the top of my career was there. I started relating with famous people. And at the same time, you're working at (laughs) Hyundai and also running a massive drug operation. 
Incredible. It's an odd combination, I have to say. A mariachi singing Hyundai employee with a drug operation on the side, not something that you'd see on most LinkedIn profiles. But the lucrative nature of his side job was a tailwind for his singing career. (laughs) Providing the flexibility to perform and create without the limitations that coincide with financial pressure. Now in Chicago, Juan, an immigrant from Guatemala, was able to spend his evenings basking in the richness of music, a bridge between people and a bridge between cultures. But as wealth and recognition surrounded him, the double life he was living neared its crescendo and his insatiable desire for more pushed him to its peak. Yeah, and just so everyone knows, so you were doing 125 kilos. Within a week, yeah, yeah. Which comes out to, you know, if you're selling them for 25. 23, right there, yeah. Yeah, so let's say 23,000 each. That's 2.8 million a week that you're dealing with. I'm moving that money, that's not that much. Just to put this in perspective, you're not taking all of this home, but $150 million is moving through this operation in a year. $150 million, which is massive. Now, nothing impresses me. You know, like I see they talk about rich people, you know, like all this money. It doesn't impress me, you know, because I see it, you know, like I've I been in their life. And you got to remember, I'm still working in Hyundai. I know. That's the craziest part. That's the craziest. I'm a shipping supervisor. None of my uh, my colleagues at work, nobody knew what I was doing outside work. Day in my life, it was like in spontaneous. You know, like a Friday, I would tell my guys, hey, let's go to Vegas. I would go rent a limousine. We would go to all around the city with girls and fancy drinks, you know, all this life, like, because money was easy. And that's when I think the police started noticing, you know, well, this guy works in the warehouse, maybe making $60,000 a year. And he's driving a $100,000 car and drinking Louis 13, you know, that was one of my favorite cognac, $1,000 the bottle. People will start wondering how he's doing all this and he works for Hyundai. $1,000 bottles of cognac don't exactly scream out Hyundai employee, but this lifestyle had consumed Juan. He keeps referring back to greed and how much it contributed to his endless pursuit of extravagance. In our last episode, David Norman cautions against looking towards wealth for happiness and Seneca, the Roman Stoic philosopher, would agree. He says... How then can you think it is the amount of money that matters and not the attitude of the mind? Juan's experience taps into the scene. Can true contentment ever be found when what you have is never enough? The amount of money that this drug operation was shuffling around, 150 million per year, is challenging for most people to even begin to wrap their heads around. But it was a shrug off the shoulders to Juan. He relished the views of the Bellagio and Caesar's Palace colored fountains and champagne spraying. He was working for Hyundai, but he was living like he owned it, and his guise was no longer an adequate cover. In Aurora, where I live, the police start getting more involved and they start catching more people. I remember in 2006, they they did a big drug bust in Aurora, and I knew some of that people. So for me, that was like an alert. At the same time, when I was making that money, you know, I, I had like goals, you know, like I remember my first goal was to buy a ranch in Guatemala. So I made enough money to do that. I should have stopped, you know, like say, okay, I got my ranch, I got enough money. But no, instead of stop, I said, no, I'm gonna buy a bigger ranch. And I met that goal, you know, I buy another land and I still didn't stop. Me, like I said, being blind and being greedy, I said, they're not going to come to me, you know, they're not going to catch me. Wow. We were planning to go get a tone to Mexico. You know, when I'm in the top, that was going to be my last move. I said, after this, I'm done. I'm going to retire. I'm not going to do it no more. Yeah, what happened? It wasn't a Tuesday. Remember, I don't like to do nothing on a Tuesday. Bad day. 
My friend got caught on Tuesday morning, so he's already with the detective, police, and everything. He calls me at eight o'clock in the morning and asks me, "Hey, I need a three three kilos. You know, I got the buyers, I got the money and everything." I say, "Man, I'm gonna work. You know, I cannot do that. I was working that day." I had the feeling something was going on, so I called my ex-wife, and she didn't answer the phone, and I got nervous, you know. I had some cash, because back then I had two houses. My crazy mind said, well, I'm going to go get whatever I have in my house and put it in the other house, so they're not going to look for it. So I went and moved it, and I was so rushing, I left the stuff in the garage of the other house, and I went back to work. And I keep calling my ex-wife and she did not answer. So I got more nervous. I said, man, how about if they're going to go and open the garage? And I was thinking, I had the feeling that something was going to happen. I very much, I didn't even want to go back. You know, like something was telling me, don't go, run. No, I can't do this to my brother and my mom. They're going to find it there and then they're going to get in trouble. I get in the driveway and like everything blocked. The whole block was circled. There was helicopters. They were already waiting for me. They knew that I was gonna go there. When I get to the house, they all got me with machine guns and got me on the ground. They were celebrating, you know, we got them, we got them. It was the end of, of me. I fell in a big ditch. That's it, it's over. You know, I was protecting my brother, like I said, when I was a kid and everything. This hit me here because my brother was coming back from work. He didn't know what was going on, and they were waiting for him, and he got arrested too. So imagine that emotion, that how do I feel, you know, that I'm supposed to be his protector. I'm supposed to be make sure that nothing wrong happens to him and, and see him on the ground getting handicapped and with guns on the head. I would have preferred to be that than see all that stuff. You gotta be careful the type of decisions that we make in life because there is a lot of opportunities. There is bad and good opportunities, you know, and I had the choice to do the right thing and the wrong thing. And I made the decision to do the wrong thing because I believe even if I would have decided to you know, keep working with Honda and all that, I would have done good too. But uh, I decided to get easy money and the consequence right there. You know, when I got arrested that day, being on the ground with a bunch of guns in your head, I don't wish that to nobody. It's very hard. Money is not everything in life. All this money that I talk about, that I say that I made, at that moment I got caught, that money was nothing. Remember I said I was in the pick of my life and I was to go get a big move, which was going to be my last move? Well, I got arrested on April 1st. We were planning to go do that move in May. The two persons that I was going to go do that move, they made the decision to go and do it anyways. As soon as they crossed Mexico, they were waiting for them and they all got killed. By a cartel? It was a cartel, yeah. And... Imagine I wouldn't be with them. I wouldn't get killed. And that's when I realized that maybe I can help one person, you know, to make the right decision, not to go the wrong path like I did. There's a contrast in this portion of Juan's story between the value of money and the value of life. When Juan got arrested, everything he had been working toward evaporated. Hennessy nights and limousines were replaced by a cold, hard floor and metal bars. He was completely on his own. But when he looks in retrospect, the relief and gratitude in his voice is palpable. The arrest preserved his life. But this was only the beginning. There was no get-out-of-jail-free card or any amount of money that could be paid to change the circumstance. So this was the reality he had to accept. Well, I was 38 years old when I got arrested. And the problem is that these booking jails, the, the treatment for a person is very, it's not human, you know. They treat you like a dog, you know, they 
give you food on the floor, you know, like we used to put our sodas in, in, the, in the toilet water to make it cold. All these things that we have to do, you know, like to eat like something good, you know, like something not good, but you know, like at, at that place was good, you know. I forgot that we didn't talk about your friend. When did you find out about what he did? When we were at the booking, you know, where they, they read your sentence and everything, I saw him. When the lawyer, you know, he started fighting the case, he started asking for evidence, proof of evidence and everything. And that's when he started reading and he find out that he was the one that informed the police about me, you know, because it was in the, in the, in the, the, the papers. So that my lawyer also find out that he was the one that called on me. He got 15 years like me, so he was trying to get like a better deal, you know, from the police, you know, to do half, to do seven and a half. And it happens to be that he, he ended up being worse than me. Since he was an immigrant, you know, he didn't have all his papers correct. They forced him to do his parole time in jail. Juan doesn't say it directly, but I get the impression that he didn't feel too terrible about his old friend having to spend his parole time in jail. In prison, there is an unwritten rule about communication with the authorities. Don't snitch. But Juan doesn't say anything about this. He doesn't pin it on his friend in that way. However frustrated or betrayed he may have felt about it at the time, doesn't come through when he retells it. The restrictive version of the life he was now living appears in stark contrast to his recent past. The luxury of material glory was now nothing but a lingering memory. And jail couldn't feel further away from it all. But he was alive. Without freedom, but alive. There was no escaping this new reality, but there was adapting to it. And this would prove to be Juan's transformative chapter. I start reading the Bible. The first day, you know, that I realized that, I cried the whole night, you know, I surrendered myself to God and I told him, hey, here's my life, you know, and take it. Do what you need to do with my life, you know. I'm gonna be a different person, you know. I'm gonna be a, a productive person, you know. Somebody that is gonna represent you, you know. I created a, a relationship just me and him. So when the pastor called everybody to come, you know, and give you life to God and everything, I go there and I start crying, you know, and bend my knees and something got me, you know, like let everything go. And then I say, I want to sing a song. You know, I wrote a song. I couldn't talk. It was weird. You know, I couldn't, I wanted to sing it. I was like mumbling. And that's when I, I realized that I had to change my life and I have to be closer to God, you know, like I have to follow, you know, and see what he really wants to do with my life. Even as of right now, I'm still not sure what he wants to do, but I try to do my best. You know, I try to help people. I try to live the, the correct life, you know, not to make the mistake that I made again. Because for me, this is a second opportunity that I have. Going to jail, they give me a, a number. That number is going to be with me until my last day I die. That number doesn't define me, you know, because now I'm trying to be different. I had to accept myself, you know, that for the rest of my life, I was going to be an ex-prisoner. That mistake, they have to make me stronger, you know, to live a better life. The efforts that Juan took in order to disassociate with his past did in some ways work. People who used to call him for drugs finally stopped calling, but he could never get rid of that number, M07602. That was now immortalized in the public record. But the immortal life of numbers on a page was nothing in comparison to that which had been offered to him through God. Before he was arrested, expensive alcohol and nice cars had dominated his life. But now, in its absence, he had found true wealth in religion. But seven years was reaching its end, and the outside world presented uncertainty. He was Juan Medoya, inmate M07602, who had a warm, croony voice and an unshakable faith, who was finally heading home. After getting out, what did you want to do with your life, and what did you feel you could do? be honest with you, I was afraid. 
my mind was like, I'm gonna get out. I'm gonna find a job. I'm gonna keep my education because in jail I took some classes. You know, something that was gonna help me to get my business associate. And when I get out, I'm gonna go find a whatever job I find. You know, I'm gonna have to take it and start all over from zero. You know, from nothing. When I came out of jail, I just had a plastic bag, which I still have it, and then uh, a white shirt and uh, sweatpants. At the same time, I had that that string, you know, like God is with me, you know, and that's all I need. Look at this. This was uh, ordering to order uh, food and you know, like grocery uh, jail. This was the ordering. So I use it to write. It's in Spanish, but I'm gonna to try to translate it. It says, where I am, I always will carry you with me. I need the care where I'm going, I'm gonna take you with me. Please don't let me alone because I need you all the time with me. You know how to take care of me. You know how to guide me. You know how to make me feel like virtual, you know, like to feel safe, you know, like secure with talent, you know. I don't know how to pay everything that you do with me in this place. Only my life can pay you and you can take it from now on. Never, never leave me. Please, I beg you, please don't leave me. You know how to take care of me. Please protect me. I don't want to be alone again. Take my life and do what you need to do with it. This last entry Juan reads exudes a sincerity and rawness that resonates upon listening. His faith had become a support system, carrying the weight of those seven long years. And he knew that the same challenges he faced before prison would still be there when he returned. But looking down at the plastic bag, the white t-shirt and sweatpants folded up, warmth of wear long gone, Juan also knew that he had no other choice than to move forward, in step with his faith, and relentlessly pursue change. You took a lot of these lessons as you left. And so like, I want to talk about some of the things that you've done since then and, and where you are today. I came out of jail in April, April 1st. So I came out on the Wednesday. I went home and the first thing I ate was McDonald's. <laughs> you know, after seven years eating real food, you know, and uh, man, that thing tastes real good, you know? Yeah, like I was eating a filet mignon steak, you know? <laughs> My old job of Hyundai, they still were gonna give me the opportunity to go back to work. Even the, you know, that's when you got real good friends, you know, and the, these people are hungry, they're, they're like my family, you know. So they were already had me a, a job, you know, when I was coming out. We made it home. I called my friend at work, you know, and I told him I was already home. And the first thing is, when you want to come to work, you know? I told him, well, you know, as soon as I, the parole officer is okay, I go. So parole, go there and check and everything was okay. And then on Monday, I go back to work at Hyundai. And so you have this job at Hyundai, you're working there. How does that lead up to being your own delivery driver? It was hard for me because remember I told you, they didn't know my lifestyle after work. So when they find out, they were all shocked because I was all over the news and everything when that happened. I said, what? And now I'm going back and the person, in person, I have to explain them and at least apologize to my friends, you know, because I, I, I feel, you know, bad with them, you know, they trust me. We had a good talk with my supervisor and then the, the, the manager didn't want to see me, you know, but the supervisor was real close to the manager. So finally, a week after the manager said, okay, we'll talk to him, you know, and finally we talked, you know, and I told them, you know, that I made a mistake, but uh, I really will, will do, you know, whatever it takes to prove them that, you know, that I want to have that second opportunity of life, you know. 
and they say, okay, you're going to, you're going to come back, but you're going to start from the bottom, you know, from zero, like you did it in the beginning. So I start from zero. The first six months I was building pallets, but then I want to do a business. I was sleeping only three hours for a year and a half. I did that. I had the, you know, the, the, the how you say, like the drive. And then the, the same time, I, I'm afraid, you know, the, the, the fear, you know, that I don't want to go back to jail. When I was coming out of jail, all, all the saying in jail said, in 90 days, you'll be back. Even the police, the officer, everything. And, and I put that in my mind, said, no, I don't want to be that, that person. They're going to come back in 90 days. I don't want to be that, that number. So all the time, you know, I had that in my mind. And when I was like getting weak, that this bag I show you, I would go and look this bag, you know, and said that it motivates me. You know, and I keep doing that, you know. Yeah, to keep on that path. And then for a year and a half, I got my associate. I got my uh, CDL driving license. And then uh, we started our own business, trucking business. So I'm still working, you know, have my regular job. I'm an operation manager for the company I work right now. And then at the same time, I run my, we run our trucking business. Doors opens, you know, like it comes. The person who walked back onto the streets of Aurora, now seven years older and transformed by faith, was not the same person who left in handcuffs. The words of fellow inmates rang out to Juan. In 90 days, you'll be back, they said signaling a sealed fate outside the breadth of his control. But he refused to break under the weight of his past or the pursuit of fleeting materialism. And Juan recognized that this was his chance to make up for lost time. 90 days back in, not a chance. He was setting off on his new path. And this was only the beginning. So, Tell me where everything is today and what you feel like you, you want to do with your life and what you are doing with your life. I experienced the bad choices. I suffered the consequence. I paid my time and everything. Now, after that, I'm leaving the, the good choice, the, the right choice. I'm not ashamed, you know, the, to say that I was an ex-prisoner. I said it because... Being in prison doesn't define me. What defines me is what I'm doing right now and what I'm planning to do in the future. Like, I help as many people I can. Uh, I think you, you've seen uh, some of the videos where I'm in Guatemala, have good kids and, you know, doing whatever. I'm blessed that I can bless other people, you know. And I'm, uh, I'm working in, uh, like, in the bell, you know, like, talk to young people about what I, I went through in, in jail and what what I can, how I can help them, you know, to prevent that. Another project is uh, I want to start singing Christian music and then uh, I want to keep learning more how to express myself, you know, like my communication skills. I know it's not up there yet, you know, like 100%. All that I want to learn, you know, and be a communicator, be a, uh, how to say, like, advisor, you know, like, help. That's what I want to do. The sugarcane fields of Guatemala, with towering green shoots springing out from the damp soil, raised one. But the light-blocking skyscrapers of downtown Chicago and the red brick buildings of Aurora shaped him. Poverty evolved into affluence, and Juan's familiarity with having nothing led to the constant desire for more. Dealing drugs meant a life previously unimaginable, the kind of money seen in films with Rolls-Royce cruising down Rodeo Drive. Entrepreneurs pursue achievement, profit, and reward, and Juan did the same. But his first trajectory, the one that resulted in prison time, was the path of least resistance. And seven years lost is a hard price to pay. There's no turning back time, and Juan doesn't seek to. But who he is now, singing rich notes to the phone receiver, pursuing a fleet of trucks. This is his second chance. We can never completely detach ourselves from the past, but it reveals itself during late nights in bed, on quiet midweek mornings, or when passing a familiar place along the freeway. We can't completely detach, but we can move on. We can refuse to tread water and choose to swim towards land, towards the hope that there's something better, something good, and something waiting for us. 
on the other side. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn, with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zhang, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Lingmu Hu, with support from Tiffany Dang, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruvalcava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.